This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, with the presidential election behind us and, well, pretty much everything else in front of us, we are joined by Indivisible co-founders Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin to celebrate our big win, assess where we may have come up short, and to talk about the game plan between now and Inauguration Day. It's a series of action steps called Closing the Door on 2020, and you know you like the sound of that. It's next. Last Tuesday's election was the culmination of four years of work. It has given us a lot to celebrate, some things to assess, and a chance to consider what is next, both in the days and weeks leading up to President-elect Biden. I never get tired of that. President-elect <laughs> Biden's inauguration on January 20th. And then we're going to talk a little bit about 2021 and beyond. It is therefore an excellent time to check in with our friends, uh, Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin. They are the co-founders of Indivisible to talk about the path ahead. It is so great to see both of you. First and foremost, congratulations to you both. I just have to say, everybody on this end is totally in love with baby Zeke. Well, thank, thank you. you. We are, we are in love too. with baby Zeke, too. Um, and I got to say, the first time I got to write out the words President-elect Joe Biden, I got a little chill. And yeah. I think that excitement hasn't worn off every time I get to write it. God, it feels good. I, I cannot stop saying it. I just keep saying yeah. it reflexively over and over and over again. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. We have a, a question um, from uh, some Indivisible members here. We in Washington State actually have, uh, we are blessed to have an Indivisible baby as well. Her name is Tara. Uh, and her, Yes, and her parents, Joe and Alex, ask you guys, um, which has caused less sleep, parenting a newborn or living under a Trump presidency? Oh, 100% the Trump presidency. And I will say, even even in the, uh, you know, Zeke was about three weeks old on election day. And um, even as a three-week-old, we were we were losing more sleep watching the results come in and watching the counting happening than we were with him. He's been a pretty good sleeper so far, baby. actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. boy, lucky you! That is that is awesome news. I'm I'm glad to hear that. And you know, we're not gonna as we were saying earlier, we're not gonna have to live under a Trump presidency uh, much longer because uh, to quote Hamilton, we won, we won, we won. Um, and by the way, Ezra, congratulations on calling the map. Uh, you called it exactly right on election night. I think you were one of the only people who called Nebraska to Georgia and Arizona. So you know what's what, what's up with that, man? How'd you get it right? I just I have met and know well the indivisibles in Arizona and Georgia, and I I knew they were going to pull it out for us. And you know, just looking objectively at the information we had at that point, you know, I think as progressives we have a, a tendency to um, just fall into doubt and and uh, doom scrolling. And in that moment, that's what we saw. People were saying, "Oh my gosh, the sky is falling. This isn't the utter repudiation of Trumpism that we knew was coming." What what is going on? We might lose even even within our own household. That would happen a little bit. But you know, if you just looked at where things were and you understood where the race was at that point, the most likely scenario was indeed three hundred six electoral college votes. Um, and turns out that that's what it ended up being. Up until that moment, we didn't know because all we had were polls, right? And mm-hmm. polls are are uh, as they always are. They're flawed. They're they're never going to tell you the, all the information. But once the votes started coming in, it seemed pretty clear that we were we were headed towards a a plus three hundred um, electoral college win. And um, gosh, I can't tell you how great that is to see. Seeing Georgia in our column, seeing Arizona in our column is incredible. Uh, it's absolutely incredible. And 
you know, I'm reminded specifically of Georgia, and we can talk a little bit about the Senate seats. I'm sure. reminded just of how indivisible, you know, started. Our first election was in Georgia. Uh, people probably remember this. It was the special election for John Ossoff uh, in 2017. And Indivisible was young then. We were a couple months old. And we were telling people at that time, gosh, we know this is Newt Gingrich's seat. But if you were seeing what we saw, we're telling you, we can win this. There, and it's not just this seat. There is a wave coming. We can even take the House of Representatives in 2018. And people were like, no, you're crazy. What about gerrymandering? Or what about Donald Trump? Or what are voter suppression? Wait, like, this is too hard. We're not going to be able to do it. And and we we were talking to the indivisible groups. There were 13 indivisible groups spread across the three counties in that district. Um, and we were hyped about it. And then, of course, John Ossoff lost. And he lost by three and a half points. And I remember vividly, I'll always remember this. Lee and I um, decided we, we wanted to call down to the indivisible groups uh, that night, the night Ossoff lost the special election in 2017, just to cheer them up, to re, to encourage them that they they did the good thing and, you know, put on a brave face and we're going to keep on building. Um, and we reached them in this raucous, like noisy bar and they were ecstatic. And they told us, oh my gosh, we're purple now. And we're going to hold this bad new Congresswoman accountable and we're going to keep building. And less than 18 months later, uh, Lucy McBeth, the mother of the movement, Flipped that seat. She won by a point. And then two years later in this election, she won that seat by nine points. Mm. So uh, I, I just think the, the the lesson repeatedly for me throughout these last four years is do not undercount the importance of local organizing and power building. All of the polling, all the national punditry isn't worth a cent when it's put up against the work that people are doing on the ground, even in supposedly red states like Georgia. doesn't mean that we're always going to win, but it does mean that there is a pathway to victory. Well, and I think you talk about Arizona and Georgia, right? We're we're talking about long, deep organizing that's been going on way before. before Indivisible, yeah. Right? I mean, Arizona, um, folks will trace a lot of the the power building that has been happening to the reaction to SB 1070 and the enormous amount of uh, organizing and power building that immigrant rights and immigrant justice folks have been doing in reaction to that, um, folks like Lucha on the ground. And, you know, that that is a, a long arc and a long trajectory. And obviously with Georgia, um, the work that Stacey Abrams had been doing to build a winning coalition and protect the vote. Um, it just yeah. it goes to show the long arc that we're working through here. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree with Everything that you just said, and I, you know, you're, you're talking about these long trajectories and, and, and things and organizing that has been on the ground for quite some time in these states. And so I will just ask you, you know, we've been on this for four years now, and yeah. I'm wondering how you're both thinking about Indivisible's role in Biden's victory, kind of in that context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, I'm thinking you know, four years ago, we were tweeting at a guide in our living room. This election season, so um, leading into the November election, Indivisibles contacted, um, reached out to 62 million voters. Wow. 62 million voters. That includes, you know, there was a 20,000 margin victory in Wisconsin. We reached out to a couple million voters there. A few tens of thousands of votes got us Georgia. We reached out to over 5 million voters in Georgia. You look down the list, and I think it would be, Hard to make the the argument that Indivisible didn't play an incredibly crucial role in building the power we needed and getting out the vote to win this election for the presidency. Now, the thing about 
uh, an election that is decided by tens of thousands of votes in a few states is it really comes down to what we're all doing. So to Leah's point earlier, you know, this our win in Georgia doesn't happen without a Stacey Abrams, who after the 2018 election was stolen from her. She didn't go home. She didn't give up. She she hit back on the ground, building up fair fight action, building out voter protection efforts and building up progressive power in Georgia. We saw that repeatedly throughout. So I, I am really proud of the of the work Indivisible did, not just on its own, but in concert with these partners across the country. I think it's, um, I think the dream that I think many of us had immediately after the 2016 election and then after the 2018 election and then Lee at the 2020 election was that this country made a mistake that it would rectify immediately. That clearly Donald Trump was an accent of history that most people would immediately reject him once they saw what he was all about, that he would be revealed for the fraud he really is. And we have not seen that. We didn't see it immediately after twenty seven or 2016 when he instituted the Muslim ban or when he tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act or when he passed his tax scam. We didn't see it in 2018 in the, in the elections, which were a, a huge victory for Democrats, but a knockdown drag out fight. It, was, it wasn't an utter repudiation. And we didn't see it in this election either. 70 million Americans will have voted for Donald Trump. The worst history, the worst year in most of our lives that we've lived through, 2020, with an economic recession and a, and a COVID crisis that's killed over 200,000 Americans. And 70 million Americans said, yes, please, more, more of that. I will vote for more of that. that. That is the word we're living in. Can I ask you something about that? Because this has been weighing on me very, very heavily. And yeah, it is just hard to wrap my head around the fact that, as you say, over 70 million Americans knew what this guy stood for. You know, the, the white supremacy, the children in cages, the, the hundreds of thousands dead from COVID, and they, they, they pulled the lever for him anyway. And it's a tough question, but you're driving at this anyway, so I'll just go ahead and ask you, how do you think that should inform our work as activists going forward, knowing that there is this incredible cleavage in the way that we view reality in this country? Yeah. Uh, I think it's an app. I mean, that is the central question. And I think we ought to be doing a lot of um, soul searching and strategizing as we look to the progressive future that we want to build for how we can, um, how can we actually achieve it? And I think um, I'll say a couple of things and Leah has deeper thoughts on this than I do. Um, the, the fact that we have right-wingers, the fact that we have white supremacists, the fact that we have white nationalists in this country is not unique to America. Um, uh, Finland has a sizable uh, nationalist right-wing party. The unique thing about the United States is that we amplify a minority of the minority into majority power by virtue of our institutions. And I mean both our democratic institutions like the Electoral College and the Senate and the filibuster um, and through gerrymandering and voter suppression, et cetera, but also our media institutions that uh, create something like Fox News and Sinclair Broadcasting that allows this nationalist um, minority to believe it is the majority and to gain more supporters through that media ecosystem. So they, they exist in almost literally a different world, but very literally a different informational world than us. They We do not agree on the same facts, and that's supported by our media ecosystem. Now, nobody is asking in Finland, how can we reach out to those nationalists, those right-wingers, because it's a minority party that never achieves majority uh, power. It never is able to set uh, policy for the entirety of the country. Our fundamental problem is we have structures that don't reflect the will of the majority. And this election, 
Um, we won the presidency, we won the House of Representatives, and it's a nail-biter about whether we're going to win the Senate or not. Nobody, though, nobody is under any illusion whether Donald Trump and his cohort could win a majority of the vote. Donald Trump is on, on the path to lose by 7 million votes. Democratic candidates are going to win the vast majority of the votes for House of Representatives, the vast majority of votes for Senate. And yet it's a nail-biter about how, how close it will be. So I think, you know, when I think about what do we need to do in order to uh, uh, to build the progressive future we want to see? Fundamentally, we need to have structures in place that amplify the will of the majority instead of amplifying the will of the minority. Now, in an ideal world, the way that happens is we win these two Senate seats in Georgia, we take the majority in the Senate, and then we pass some legislation. If we fail to win the majority in the Senate, Mitch McConnell isn't letting any of those changes through. Right. He's going to be a majority leader and he will prevent us from doing that. That's going to require some more long-term power building. That's going to require rethinking how do you, in a system that amplifies the will of the minority, gain power as the majority to make the reforms you need? Because you can't do one without the other. Um, and so it, it turns into a longer-term game. Uh, Leah, do you, do you have probably more. I I mean, I guess I'd add a couple of things. I think one is just from a framing and perspective point. I do think we, it's easy for us to get shaken by the fact that there are indeed so many people who continue to back Trump and we really shouldn't shy away from the fact that we legitimately are, you know, the vast, like we have a bigger majority than they do. And that's not, that doesn't feel like it's the case because of our electoral college institutions, but it's absolutely the case. Like Joe Biden is going to win a resounding majority of people. Seven million votes. Um, that said, the other thing that I think we should be digging into, and I think it's particularly relevant for us as the indivisible movement, I think there's a lot of data that we should be thinking about in terms of this election around who is the Trumpist coalition and who is the Republican coalition. Yeah. Because the difference between, you know, the places where Joe Biden outperformed down ballot Democrats are places where we really need to ask some questions about did people who voted against Trump then turn around and vote for their Republicans? And is that because we have not successfully made the connection in people's minds between these two groups, right? Um, because as far as we all know at this point, like Republicans are the enablers of Trumpism. You can't separate these two things out. But a lot of people, it looks like, separated them out. And that's where we got all these disappointing down ballot results. And so I think that, it's a great point. That's a place where we need to dig deeper. And I think especially as we're looking at, you know, seats in Congress that we lost, Senate seats that we came really close on, um, that's a place where we got to ask some questions about whether we're really making the connections in people's minds between the hate that Trump and the hate and the clown show that Trump is running and their their regular Republican representatives. Yeah, just to double down on that, I mean. At a 30,000 foot level, if you look at the campaigns that Republicans ran versus the campaigns that Democrats ran this cycle, what we saw Republicans running on was Democrats are not just in favor of bad policies, not even just socialists. Democrats are, in some cases, Satan worshiping child molesters right. who will literally kill you and destroy this country. Like that is one popular position among QAnon supporters and particularly right-wing Republicans. And at a 30,000 foot, the Democratic campaign was, trust us to administer government. We can work with Republicans. Those are the two messages. I, I, it makes sense to me that in that climate, you get a resounding defeat of Donald Trump because he 
he is the evil man in this campaign. But then you get a lot of people saying, but we can also vote for a moderate Republican or a centrist Republican because the Democrats are saying that they can work with them. When in reality, what Leah said is exactly correct, which is Donald Trump is one man. The reason why he has done so much damage is because the Republican Party is almost to a person lined up behind him. Right. And we're seeing that right now. And this is uh, something else that has been very much concerning listeners, uh, which is the fact that Trump is still refusing to concede. He is actively trying to overturn the results of the election with, as you say, you know, GOP enablers. It's looking pretty impossible right now. But I'll tell you what I worry about. Um, I worry that Trump is not only delegitimizing the the Biden presidency. I I worry that he is damaging the institution of voting. Uh, He is damaging our democracy. He's fomenting violence. Uh, Any thoughts on all of that? Well, look, we always knew that uh, this was not a man who would deliver a normal concession speech like a normal politician. And um, he is he is a sociopathic hateful, spiteful toddler, and he was going to do as much damage as he possibly could on the way out um, all along. Uh, And I think the only thing that affects that is his own calculations about his future well-being and prospects. The reality, I mean, I I guess what I would start by saying is nobody is going to feel safe uh, until January 21st when Joe Biden is moving into the White House. Um, Nobody is going to feel like this is a normal transition until that point. Simultaneously, um, we think it's really important to not give Donald Trump more power than he actually has during this moment. Um, He is a con man. He speaks things into existence. And, you know, what's very important to continue to stress is he lost. He lost in a way where he has no realistic prospect of challenging the results. He can do enormous damage in terms of his own supporters' perception of the legitimacy of the election, and that is deeply concerning. And also, we don't want to set this up as a he said, she said, or he said, they said situation. Um, Donald Trump is not. He right now the media is doing actually a very responsible job of covering both the original election, the calling of the results, and the claims that um, Donald Trump is making of fraud. And we want to continue to stress and emphasize just the the genuine inevitability of a Biden-Harris transition. Donald Trump has no plausible path to challenge that. Um, we need to be ready to push back if he, if and as he attempts to do things that are extra legal. But we also don't want again we don't want to like give him powers that he doesn't have in the public perception. But to your point that it's not just. I think the danger of Donald Trump actually holding on to power is is slim to none right now. I think broadly the media ecosystem uh, very publicly has recognized that we have a, a, a president-elect Joe Biden, president-elect Joe Biden, president-elect Joe Biden. Just keep on saying it because it's true. And also um, to some extent in public and almost entirely behind the scenes, the Republican uh, uh, establishment is come to that conclusion as well. Um, so I – I think on on that front, I'm less worried. I think on your your deeper point here of what about the damage? For, forget about Trump trying to stay in office. What about the damage to the trust in our democratic institutions and faith in you know free and fair elections? I think that is very real, and it's not a Donald Trump problem. This comes back to our our earlier discussion about what is the role of the Republican Party in undermining American democracy now? And the scary thing is um, they are playing a real role and that it's not new. Trump is the most egregious, and we've talked about this when we talked about our book before, Trump is this uh, this terrible symptom, but 
40 years ago, when Ronald Reagan was running for president, we had leaders of the Republican right saying out loud that they didn't want people to vote, that they wanted fewer people to vote because they understood that if more people voted, they did worse. So I think the Republican Party is has accurately assessed that their policy agenda, one that is based on appointing religious right extremists to the courts, one that is based on cutting taxes for rich people, one is based on deregulating business so they can trash the planet, that is not popular. That is not popular. They understand that that's not popular. And so their solution to maintaining that policy agenda is systematically undermining our democratic institutions. Because if your democratic institutions don't respond to the will of the people, you can keep on doing unpopular things. Well, Mike Lee said as much, right, in in his tweet. Mike Lee basically said, you know, ranked democracy is basically getting in the way of well-being, or I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, yeah, Yeah. he kind of laid it on the table. That And that is not an extreme position within the Republican Party. That is the position of the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell went on the floor of the U.S. Senate and called voting rights, election security, and D.C. statehood socialism and a power grab. Like, that's how they view it. And it's not that they're dumb. It's they're actually viciously strategic. And that is a fundamental problem confronting us and will continue to confront us long after Trump is just a cautionary tale in the history books. So I I, do worry for our elections going forward. I worry about what does 2022 look like? What does 2024 look like if we don't actually address these basic weaknesses? Well, our first opportunity to do this, obviously, is the runoff in Georgia, right? Yes. I mean, we, we recognize the fact that if we cannot control the Senate, it's going to seriously hamstring our ability to stop a lot of the things that you're talking about. I mean, as you say, the Republicans do not have a popular agenda, so their only tactic that they can use, and they're going to use it over and over and over again, is to basically just take away, to disenfranchise, to take away the rights to vote. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that we have to put all of our our efforts on right now is winning the two uh, you know Georgia right. runoffs. These, of course, for people who uh, may not know, and I imagine that most everybody listening does, but these are the two January fifth races that will determine the control of the Senate. And I will just ask you guys: people are very, very anxious to get involved in, in Washington yeah. right now. We've been told to hold back at this point while organizers on the ground kind of get their game together. What's the state of play right now? What can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, I'm so jazzed about this. I can't tell you. Um, So again, just a reminder, Joe Biden took Georgia. We won Georgia. So we have won the most recent statewide race in Georgia. Um, Anybody that says that these races aren't winnable, um, uh, I I just totally discount their opinion. These are absolutely winnable. Are they guaranteed? Far from it. It was a close race in Georgia. But I think these are very winnable. Um, Just a, a note on the stakes it's not just the democracy reforms that we want to see. It's not even just the COVID response legislation or economic response uh, that we want to see in Congress. Mitch McConnell, as Senate Majority Leader, has already brought up that he wants to block Joe Biden from appointing a cabinet. And I want he, to get to that in just a second. Yeah. yeah. So the, the stakes here are extraordinarily high. If Democrats take both of these seats, then they will have 50 votes in the Senate and Vice President Kamala Harris will be able to break any ties and will be able to pass legislation. So the stakes are extraordinarily high. And I think we've got a decent shot. I don't think it's guaranteed, but I think we've got a decent shot. There are several indivisible groups 
that have been very active. I, I'd love to call out a few. The Indivisible Georgia Coalition, which is a statewide co- coalition of indivisible groups. Georgia, Indivisible Georgia 4th, Indivisible Georgia 6th District, Indivisible Lumpkin, Indivisible Georgia 11th. These are just some of the very active indivisible groups that have been building for years. Um, maybe we can uh, follow up and send some ways for people to support those, those groups. Separate from supporting the local indivisible groups, Indivisible National is going to be running a full-scale campaign to get out the vote in Georgia. We're going to be launching it very soon, um, as soon as next week. So we want people to be able to participate in this program to get out the vote. And that's going to look something like what we did nationwide and in Georgia this term when we uh, reached out to 5.1 or 5.2 million voters. So that's going to be postcarding. That's going to be text making. That's going to be phone making. That's going to be doing the kinds of things we need to do to get out the vote. Now, to be clear, this isn't all just indivisible. And in fact, if we just try to go it alone, we're worried that we'll do it less efficiently or do it in a way that is counterproductive. So the reason why we haven't launched anything yet is because we're working closely with many partners who are on the ground in Georgia to ensure that we're dividing and conquering in the right way. So there are great groups like Mahinte, a great um, uh, uh, organization that's going to be trying to knock on literally every um, door in Georgia that they can get to in order to get out the vote, especially in Latino communities. There are other groups like Black Vote Matters um, that uh, are going to work for getting out um, uh, votes in black communities. There are votes. Uh, there are tons of organizations that are on the ground, and it's important that we coordinate in the best way possible. So Indivisible is going to do its part. If you're listening to this and want to be part of it, by all means, sign up and help us reach out to voters. Yep. And as uh, Rachel Meadow likes to say, watch this space. I will also mention that Amy Nosek from Georgia's Sixth will be on yeah. the program next week, and oh, uh, really? yeah, Good. so she's going to have some uh, some insights uh, for us on that. Yeah, you should ask her. I think I think she's one of the ones. She, she, she was one of the ones we, we called the night that of, night, yeah. the night of John Ossoff's loss in 2017. Yeah. Oh, God, such, such a great night. That was actually the week that I talked to her as well, and we've been in touch ever since. And who That's knew that right. Georgia would wind up being kind of the center of the political universe here in the United States? Um, right. Actually, Leah, I will just ask you, what are your thoughts on the Georgia races? Are you feeling a sense of optimism? Are you feeling a sense of, of, of uh, momentum in this? Um, I'm absolutely, I think there's going to be uh, a sense of uh, genuine optimism and momentum heading in. I think that um, one of the things that we think is really re- connected right now is a lot of the national political developments will have a big impact on, you know, the perception and the way that the race is, uh, per- uh, the way that the race is received in Georgia. So looking at, you know, the COVID package that might be negotiated during this time, and also the way that the ongoing um chaos over Trump's uh, concession and departure plays out and how that plays out um, in Georgia. I do think that we're trying, we're definitely just emphasize Ezra, trying to be responsible in how we engage. Um, I think one thing Amy can also speak to is sort of the experience of every voter in Georgia 6 getting called, you know, every day um, (laughs) in the run up to that special election. There's a lot of energy all over the country that is about to get focused on one state. And we just want to make sure that we're doing it in the way that's most strategic and most um, effective and in partnership with everyone. Cause um, we, we know exactly how and how uh, high energy the full indivisible network is when we are all focused on one thing. Yeah. Yeah. We are, there's a lot of energy coming. I can attest to that. There's a lot of energy coming uh, from up in the Pacific Northwest right now. You touched on a couple of other action items. Uh, one of which was uh, fending off, it's fending off Trump catastrophes is, is the header. Um, we've already yeah. touched on his refusal to concede. Um, I kind of hate to ask, but uh, what else might we be expecting uh, during this lame duck session? 
Well, look, we're seeing, I mean, so there will probably be continued discussions over a COVID relief package. It's possible that that, um, there might be some movement on that, although right now there's not a ton. Um, You know, I think we can expect Trump to uh, get creative about whatever powers he has within his uh, last couple of months in office. I think certainly one of the most damaging and frustrating aspects of this is we're in the middle of a escalating pandemic right now. And there is no sign that anyone in the federal government is paying any attention to it. And and indeed, when they pay attention to it, they appear to be actively pro-COVID. So I think that, you know, one of the most damaging things that we're going to be watching for is is simply the lack of any kind of attention or um, lack of any kind of effective response given to the pandemic. Um, You know, so which I'll just say, I think it's going to be on all fronts. Um, we are already seeing some of the damaging things that he's doing within the agencies. Um, I, I see that someone's called out the firing of the, uh, a lot of the defense department leadership, yeah. um, likely, you know, things like destruction of records, um, use of the pardon powers, a lot of potential to cause chaos on the way out the door. Um, and, you know, we'll want to be able to activate folks and to push for oversight around those things. And when you say activate, what specifically are you thinking well, I think it depends on what exactly it is, right? But um, Congress continues to have oversight powers that they can be exercising in these situations. Um, and there's also continued um, continued efforts to, to hold folks accountable for this, right? So um, these are things that, for example, uh, Loeffler and Purdue um, should be answering for over the course of the coming months. They are part, they have been enabling an administration that continues to be out of control and, and they should answer for that. I agree. I think uh, the more we can make the Georgia runoff a referendum, uh, the better, my opinion. Um, So you have both of you have mentioned uh, the lame duck fight on COVID relief. Um, As we know, uh, McConnell uh, was set to let COVID relief uh, lapse, basically, uh, because, well, because he's he's a soulless ghoul uh, and he thought he was going to lose the Senate. And yeah, but now now somehow miraculously he's looking to negotiate. So I would just ask you uh, going into this. How best do we uh, navigate this terrain? Yeah, I mean, I think the um, legislative advocacy is the original tool and the indivisible tool belt. Um, I think the political conditions for this are uncertain. Uh, McConnell very well may wait until after the Georgia election to actually play ball and thinking that he will have more leverage after that. Um, or he might think that it will help the Georgia senators if they passes a package ahead of time. I think what Democrats ought to be fighting for is good policy, should be fighting for actual good relief. So Indivisible's got some good talking points on what we're looking for if Indivisible's want to be pushing their own representatives, their own senators for, for fighting for the right thing. Let them know what you want to see in relief. And uh, hopefully we've got um, materials that will be of use to folks who want to make their voice heard in this moment. I think what we don't want to do in this moment is – uh, uh, give away everything to McConnell or to Trump. And that will include, you know, really terrible provisions that, you know, cut out uh, immigrants or that give businesses tax cuts or other conservative wish list items just because we want to get some legislation through. We need to recognize that we're headed into a political context after January 5th, regardless of what happens in uh, the Senate elections where we have the presidency and we have the House of Representatives. What they've got is a thin, thin, thin possible majority in the Senate. Now, that means Democrats have the upper hand and Democrats should get most of what they want. 
most of what they want. That is the political situation. And if they don't get that, um, it's because we're giving up in too much to McConnell. So I think this is a time for public pressure to let representatives know that you care what's happening, that you want them to fight for good things in this bill and not just give away to McConnell. Um, but it does yeah. remain to be seen whether whether legislation will move now. And we, we hope it does or if it has to wait until uh, January. I think one develop, new development that's worth uh, calling out, and especially for folks from Washington, um, is uh, the development of a stronger progressive voting bloc in the House of Representatives. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. The progressive caucus, um, you know, has long functioned as sort of a general progressive caucus. Um, but has actually moved through some new rules, uh, rules efforts that actually make it more of a stronger negotiating body and um, ideally more of a player within uh, the internal House party negotiations. So um, can you explain a little bit how um, it's, it's a little bit wonky, but I would love for you to just explain why uh, the CPC uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus moving to vote as a block is, is a really important tool in our arsenal right now. Sure. Um, so in general, uh, when when legislation is getting worked out in the in Congress, um, leadership is trying to put together a coalition of people who will ultimately vote for the bill. Um, there are some set of folks who regularly work together as a block. So, for example, the New Deal uh, or sorry, the, the Problem Solvers Caucus, um, which is a group of moderates, uh, also often synonymous with the Blue Dogs. Um, these are folks on the moderate side who will routinely go to, uh, Just to note, they're not moderates, they're conservatives, conservative Democrats. <laughs> um, so they'll routinely go to Speaker Pelosi and they will say, um, you know, we think that this bill is not giving enough money to ICE and you need to, you need to give more money to ICE in this bill, or they will ask for some kind of exemption for uh, an industry that they're concerned about, et cetera. Um, and because they have enough votes to, uh, to hamstring legislation, that significantly improves their chances of getting what they want. Progressives historically have been really reluctant to do the same and to organize as, um, you know, as a collective in order to essentially say these things have to be in the bill if you want our support. Um, and that's for reasons, right? It's it's hard to go against leadership. It's hard to challenge leadership. It can um, be it can be difficult, and it's also just difficult to get organized. Now, historically, the Congressional Progressive Caucus has not necessarily functioned as a body that says, "Hey, you have to do X thing, and if you do, then we deliver our members for that thing." Um, the changes in the rules within the Congressional Progressive Caucus actually make it more like a vehicle that actually has that negotiating power and will be able to sort of identify key priorities and go to leadership and say, hey, if you want us to vote for this, then we need to see X, Y, and Z in the bill. Um, and that's really great news. That's an exciting development. And it means that there's there's just more of a locus for strategy. There's more of a collective negotiating approach. Uh, and it can really impact what ultimately gets into these these smorgasbord legislation, like a COVID relief package. So when I, when I was on when I was a Capitol Hill staffer a decade or so ago, the Progressive Caucus was frankly a joke. Um, it was a relatively large body um, of members that weren't particularly cohesive. That would put out budgets that people didn't pay attention to. They were basically press releases. And when it came down to vote for things, every single member of that caucus would choose the way they wanted to vote and. As a result of that, didn't really wield any power. The changes that are now being brought to the caucus by Pramila Jayapal, who is the, the chair of the caucus, 
is really their changes to make it a powerful force within Congress to basically say, hey, do you want this bill to pass? Well, you're going to have to get the okay from the Progressive Caucus. That's brand new. Literally in the last generation or two, there hasn't been a progressive block like that in Congress. So it is a pretty darn big deal. And it's a big credit to Representative Jayapal for her work in in getting us to this point. Yeah, yeah, here, here for that. I, you know, I would actually, before we move on uh, from this this section here, I, I would love for you to say a little bit about your call for the House to change rules on what is called PAYGO. Can you just briefly elaborate on what PAYGO is and why why the rules need to be changed on that? Yeah, so I mean, PAYGO is a is a, a rule that says if you are going to um, uh, if you are going to do anything that spends money, um, so spend money on COVID relief, let's say, to get to, to boost the economy, you need to find some way to cut spending in a different way or uh, raise taxes in some way. Now, this is a tool that Republicans love to talk about. And then as soon as they want to spend money or cut taxes for rich people, they just wave it. They just say, hey, don't worry about it. We're not, yeah, we normally mean this, but for this $2 trillion package that cuts taxes for your boss, we're not going to pay attention to it. Now, sometimes there, there are Democrats who want to look responsible or look like they're moderates or win over Republicans. So they, so they say, you say that you are financially responsible, but we're going to be the real financially responsible party and we're going to agree to pay go. And in reality, it just ties their hands. Next year, we if we fail to pass a COVID package in this, in this uh, remaining months of the lame duck, next year, we are going to be facing a massive health crisis and a massive economic crisis. And the idea that we would tie our hands in that moment and say, well, we would love to provide every American a $2,000 stimulus check, but we just can't because we can't afford it. That That is uh, a political nightmare for us, but it's also, I think, morally reprehensible. We need to rise to the moment right now, and being able to pass legislation that meets that moment is really necessary. So eliminating PAYGO, I think, is is a no-brainer for us. If we want to deliver, we ought to be doing it. The last item on your action items list for showing 2020 the door is ensuring that Biden makes progressive cabinet choices. Uh, McConnell has, of course, indicated that he's going to sh- try to shut down any nominees that he sees as too progressive. So, so how do we fight back here? Yeah, so, I mean, we have Donald Trump to thank for this solution. There's something called an acting secretary that does not require the um, uh, a full majority vote in the Senate, which... Um, Trump has used repeatedly uh, to install for long periods of time cabinet level um, secretaries. So uh, that I, I would love to see votes in the Senate on Biden's appointees. But in the absence of that, if Mitch McConnell refuses to let Biden staff up, Biden should just appoint acting secretaries. And that's how we're going to have to get through it. I, I am glad we're, we're ending on this this action item because I, there's a lot of doom and gloom about what what will McConnell block or what um, what will Trump do on his way out? But this should be the thing that excites us right now. We are actually headed into a new Democratic administration where new things are possible. We're already hearing moves from high up Democratic leadership that they would like to see Biden uh, move unilaterally to cancel fifty thousand dollars of student debt. Things that they can be done by this administration immediately. And that's going to come down to both what Biden prioritizes, but also who he puts into these positions of power. And I got to say, we've had some pretty good signs early on. Um, Biden has just selected as his chief of staff, um, his former chief of staff, who is a, um, uh, a, a, I would say, a pretty close um, uh, partner, not just of, in, in Biden world, but has done a really good job reaching out to uh, uh, 
progressive base and building partnerships there. I think that he has a, a good chance of, um, you know, at, at the very least, listening to progressives who are organizing around the country. Um, now, we don't yet know who Biden is going to select for his cabinet, but uh, I think early signs are at the very least he is listening to progressives and we ought to be making our voices heard. Uh, we just had a quick question here from somebody. How long can an acting appointment work? Is it 200 plus days? Did, I, I don't. What are the limits on them? So, I mean, I think the... Um, uh, you can appoint and then you can reappoint if if, uh, if necessary. I think the uh, the specific strategy of this is probably going to have to be hammered out over the course of um, the next several months as we see what kind of intransigence the Senate shows. I don't think those hurdles are insurmountable is the bottom line. I think we should focus on who are the right people for the job. And if McConnell refuses to allow these folks through, then Democrats should use the power they have to ensure that those people can still serve in the job. And so how would you like to see us apply pressure? Is it through our senators? Is that how we'll do it? Yeah. yeah so I, I, I tend to think that although uh, Biden and his team has shown a, a clear willingness to listen to progressive advocates, that still your single best voice in Washington is going to be your representatives. So that it's not just your senators. I would say your representatives have a hand in this too. There are, for instance, sometimes sign-on letters from members of Congress or advocacy groups that say, hey, we would like X type of person to be in this role, or we oppose this person, or we support that person. Uh, pushing your representative, your senators to to push in certain directions for each of these positions is, um, is a is a very worthwhile move in this moment. A good example of this, Elizabeth Warren, when she was in the primary, promised to appoint a public school teacher to be the secretary of education. That would be a totally reasonable ask for your senators and your representative to make of the Biden administration. Not put this specific person in, but confirm that you will put a public school teacher in as the secretary of education, somebody with public school teaching experience in as the secretary of education. That's the kind of ask you could make to your senators and representative. And this, in fact, dovetails with a point that you uh, have made recently, is that you don't plan to focus grassroots power directly on Biden. You plan on doing it through representative pressure, right? That's right. And again, it's a practical matter. Um, your voice goes a lot further when it comes to your own representatives. Joe Biden represents 330 million Americans, um, and it's just tougher for that voice to be heard at the administration level. Whereas the way Congress is set up, uh, you, your representatives represent about 700,000 people each, and um, and the senators, depending on the state, just represent a few hundred thousand or a few million people. So it is uh, the tool you have in Congress are your senators and representatives. So the relationship that indivisibles have been building with those members over the last four years, they're really important right now. Um, we've said this from the very beginning that, you know, we did not start indivisible to just have folks put pressure on Republicans who are supporting Trump. The whole point of indivisible is that in a representative democracy, your representatives got to represent you. And that means if you've got a Democrat, an independent or a Republican, you ought to be pushing them to be as good a representative as they possibly can in this moment. So you might have a great progressive representative or senator. That's awesome. But they might not be signing on to the right letters. They might not be making the right public statements. They might not be pushing in the way you want them to push. Uh, I worked for a very progressive member of Congress, as did Leah. And I will say we responded to external pressure. 
we did. We weren't always doing the thing automatically that we should be doing or could be doing. And if we received that pressure, we were more likely to take action. A couple of weeks back before the election, uh, Chris Hayes, I believe, had tweeted something about, uh, you know, everybody seems to have a plan for if the Democrats take both the White House and the Senate. But does anybody have a plan for if if, uh, we take the White House, um, but not the Senate? And you piped right in and you're like, yes, I do. You've laid some of this out, but I'll just ask you, and you don't have to go into extraordinary detail, but I would just love a couple of bullet points. What are some of the things, if we are stuck with the GOP Senate, what are a couple of things that you still think we can get accomplished over the next two years? Yeah, I did. I had that back and forth uh, on Twitter with some folks and was um, thought that it was a somewhat unlikely scenario that we were taking the presidency. It was more likely that we took the Senate. But yes, indeed, we have been working on an indivisible guide, both for a trifecta scenario and a non-trifecta scenario. I think the in the event that we failed to get both Georgia seats, and so we're facing a split government, there are a few things we can still do. One is obviously unilateral administrative action is real. So things like forgiving student debt that the Biden administration could do unilaterally, that's stuff that you don't need Congress to move on. Um, There are also going to be must-pass pieces of legislation. These are things like budgets or reauthorizations of bills that come up every once in a while. Those are things that even in split government, they've got to go through in some format. So the question then is going to be, what kind of deal is struck? Is are we giving more or less to um, border enforcement or giving more or less to relief for families? Those are questions that are going to be hammered out in Congress and direct pressure matters. And a big looming Uh, goal will be actually then taking the Senate in 2022. So keep in mind, um, uh, while this map for the Senate was actually pretty rough for us, um, if we lose even both of the Senate seats in, um, uh, in January, we'll just need to then pick up two Senate seats in the 2022 election. And there are, uh, two seats in mind for me that uh, in states where Joe Biden won and there are Republicans who are either retiring or up for re-election, that's Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. In both of those states, there are seats available that uh, we could pick up in 2022. Now, that's just the low-hanging fruit. You could also see us picking up other seats in, in a place like Florida, um, Uh, And we're not defending very much. Most of the seats that are up on the Democratic side are not really in play for Republicans. So I think there are real opportunities in 2022 if we fail to take the Senate in January. And then that would mean in 2023 we we could get to legislating these kind of big democracy reforms we've been talking about. And when you talk about Florida, are you talking about Marco Rubio, I hope? You know I am. Uh, you know I am. Um, so yeah, Marco Rubio is indeed up in Florida. Now, I think Florida has burned us a few times. One of the interesting things in Florida is repeatedly very progressive ballot initiatives are passing in Florida at the same time that Republicans are being elected. So in 2018, we saw Republicans elected to the state legislature, to the Senate, to the governorship. And also the largest enfranchisement of uh, Americans since the passage of the the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Um, This year we saw um, uh, that Joe Biden failed to take the state and they significantly increased the minimum wage in the exact same election. So I think there is clearly more work that needs to be done organizing people who agree with the Democrats who then find themselves voting for Republicans. So I think Rubio is a tough seat to take, but I don't think it's impossible. 
Well, for all the reasons that you said, I, I think the wind could maybe be at our back. And certainly this is another one of those situations that is going to take work. And that leads me into my final point before I let you guys go. Um, I have heard from so many members that I've lost count right now that they are bone tired. They are exhausted. Um, somebody said, you know, you, you know, you remember the whole analogy about, you know, this isn't a, uh, a sprint, it's a marathon. Uh, somebody said, yeah, it's like we've just run a marathon and now we're being asked to run another 10K. So, you know, I will just ask you, I know, and honestly, and I, I'm kind of saying this from my own personal experience as yeah. well. I, I am absolutely 100% exhausted. And I will just ask you, what you would say, you know, to members who are just feeling spent, how do we keep going? So I would say, first of all, um, let's, let's think of it less as a marathon and more as a relay race. Um, you, we need folks to keep going for the long haul, but we don't need you to be going at a hundred percent all the time every day for, you know, the next 10 years. We need you to go at a sustainable pace that allows you to, to stay engaged for the long haul. So if you are feeling tired, it's okay to take some time. Um, it's okay to, it's okay to say, you know, I'm in, I'm in for this fight and I'll be back, you know, in a couple of months, but right now I gotta, I gotta take some time for myself. My, my favorite quote from, uh, I forget the indivisible leader who told me this, um, but was speaking on that same phenomenon. And she said, you know, the choir keeps singing, even when one of us takes a breath. And it's, and it's hard, right? I mean, like we founded an organization in a moment of total, oh, and there comes Zeke. Oh, Zeke's, um, Zeke's in the house. Nice. In a moment of uh, total panic and crisis. And we've been running, you know, at full speed ever since as well. And also we know that the long way, the way that we're actually going to make change is if we're around for the long haul. And that means that we need people to take breaks and take vacations and, you know, take care of themselves in order to keep going. So I think, I do think that it's important that um, for all of us who got started after 2016, we recognized that, you know, our commitment wasn't to getting Donald Trump out of office. Our commitment was to taking on the forces that allowed him to rise because, you know, it's not enough to get him out. It's like we have to prevent the next Trump. And that means really mean, like really delivering on progressive policies that make people's lives better. And the only way that that happens is if people actually do the work to get that done. But Look, celebrate. For God's sake, yeah, folks, celebrate. We won. It's we been just- hard. I will tell you, it has been very hard because I feel like we had 24 hours, you know, yeah. after the, the the celebration with President-elect Joe Biden and, and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. And then the next day, I think a lot of us were filled with the same existential dread that we've been yep. filled with for the yep. last four years when Trump started challenging uh, all of the, you know, the, the results. And, and so it's I think it's been enormously difficult for us to actually really fully and, and, and you know, wholeheartedly celebrate right now. I think that's been part of the problem. I, I understand that. And that, that's kind of how 2018 felt too. We built the largest midterm margins in the history of the Republic. And it also, because of the way the results came in, it took some time, the counting wasn't there because there were so many people that voted for Republicans. It, it didn't feel like an utter knockout blow. It wasn't the end of the Disney movie and the credits rolling. And <laughs> and that's kind of how it feels right now, right? That, that, Gosh, 70 million people voted for this this monster of a president and then voted for his supporters in Congress. Do we have to keep on doing this? And I think, you know, the, the sad thing is, yeah, in order for democracy to work, we do have to keep on doing this. We do have to stay engaged. But in order for us to stay engaged, we got to be able to celebrate these victories. I, I really think folks should not lose sight of what we've accomplished right now. We they, It has been... Herbert Hoover was the last incumbent Republican to lose re-election without a, a third-party challenger in the mix. 
Uh, taking down an incumbent president is incredibly difficult. It does not happen very often, and this win is historic. So I would really, really encourage you all to throw a Donald Trump retirement party. My God, have have some drinks, even if it's virtual. virtual, virtual. Yeah, a virtual one. But please, like, reflect on all you've accomplished. Take a breath. Take a walk. Celebrate with friends. And when you feel recharged enough, come back to the work because it's here for you. Yeah. I think the, the other thing I would just add is um, it's normal to feel pretty bad right now because we're in the middle of a national crisis before we even get to Donald Trump and his um, chaos. Like we are we this has been a deeply traumatic year for most people. Um, it is if you're feeling great right now, like, I don't know, tell me tell me how. Right. Like, um, yeah, me too. You know, and that's that we you don't choose the times that you live in, but you choose how you respond. And so I think we can be proud of the way that we've risen to the challenge over the last four years. And I think that we're you know, we need to do what we need to do in order to make our commitment to this activism and to a just country sustainable for the long haul. I think that's a perfect place to leave it. I mean, that was going to be my last question was, you know, how you see the Indivisible project over the long term. But I think you're you're, you're laying it out uh, quite succinctly. Um, there's always going to be a lot more work to do. And one of the things that I think we want to make sure that we don't do is fall asleep with the switch like we did during the Obama years. Um, I think uh, a lot of us look at that time and think, oh, my goodness, we we felt so good about, you know, who was in the White House that the Koch brothers came in and took over all the state houses and gerrymandered the hell out mm-hmm. of the country. And here we are. So. So, yeah. So let's all take a break. And as uh, Lee and Ezra say, let's 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 throw a Donald Trump retirement party. I, I absolutely love that. Um, I, Zeke has been so wonderful uh, during this. We've barely heard a peep out of him. Uh, He's starting to get a little bit fractious, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. we all are. You, you guys are amazing. We appreciate you being our North Star uh, in all of this. And, uh, you know, take good care. And, um, you know, here's to the next steps. Yes, indeed. Right. Well, can't wait to come back on and talk about all our successes after the retirement parties. Here, here. <laughs> all right. You guys rock. Take care. Great. You too. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. And that'll do it for today. Thanks again to Leah and Ezra. Thanks also to Emily Phelps. The website for our show is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.